Vok, how's it going? <sighs> like, I'm okay. I'm fine. Um, I'm pretty over ISO life, to be honest. Yeah. I, I am as well. I'm ready for it to not be ISO life anymore. But I feel like my house has had a pretty good time. Oh, what? You're not allowed to have fun during this. You flatmater, you you sharehouser, you're having fun during this time. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah, we've been going ham on the DIY projects, and it's been a lot of fun. You've been filling your neighborhood with the sounds of hammering and DIY projects, like all of my neighbors are driving me insane. <laughs> How's that been going? It's been good. We made a mosaic. And I've been painting resources for work, which has been great. Painting upcycled bits of wood with bugs. That sounds awesome. No hammering. That's that's really good. I like painting (laughs) the activity. It's very quiet. Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) Well, I I don't have to pretend. I'm I'm over it. I want this to to be over. I want to go home from this summer camp. I'm not having fun anymore. I want to go see my friends. Can this be over now? I don't know what to say. I mean, I wish it was over, but no, I guess not. Guess it's got to keep going until it's yeah, done. Yeah, no, you're right. It, yeah, got to keep going. And and I was just like starting to feel sorry for myself and letting myself be a bit like, oh, this kind of sucks. I'm kind of over it. And then, Eve, I listened to this episode that you made, and I can't feel sorry for myself anymore because I realized that I've got it really, really good. Yeah, I mean, you can still feel sorry for yourself. That's allowed. But you do have it pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. What did you learn from this episode? Well, I I learned that, sure, I've been at home for six weeks, uh, stuck at home, but that I haven't been stuck on a fishing boat for six weeks, which is the fate of a lot of people around the world. And the place you brought this episode to us from is from a particularly abundant and beautiful part of the world called the Humboldt Current, where, you know, until recently, you could just go out and fill your fishing ship with fish and have a great life for you and your family, but now those fish stocks are dwindling, and yeah, people are spending six weeks out on the seas trying to find fish. So I don't really feel sorry for myself as much anymore. It's pretty rough, and... and People are vulnerable to some pretty horrific exploitation while they're out there because the harder it is to find fish, the more vulnerable people are to take dodgy loans and have to go into deals that they can't get out of. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah. So, you know, during COVID-19, when a lot of people like myself formerly are kind of throwing themselves pity parties for being stuck in their houses... Why are you bringing us this story, Eve, from Peru specifically, and about modern slavery in the fishing industry? Yeah, I think for me, it was about, we started off an episode a few weeks ago now about the sustainability of fisheries. And I think particularly when it comes to the ocean, people see it as a non-human environment. But when we exploit the ocean, it often goes hand in hand with the horrific exploitation of people. And I really wanted to illustrate that by showcasing how when 
we don't create security and we create these vulnerabilities in communities, then they're more likely to exploit what they've got, which is the ecosystem, mm. and puts them, well, puts everyone at risk, but particularly the people of Peru. So that's why I brought it up. Uh, but mostly importantly, I just thought it was interesting. And isn't that the remit of Fairly Curious, just to go where that interest <laughs> and that curiosity takes you? And uh, I'm already so impressed that we are going to Peru. So I'm really looking forward to having other people uh, get to hear this as well and, and to get to share this with them. Eve, I, I learned so much in this episode, and one thing I especially took away that maybe our listeners would like to know right up the front, just to keep in mind that kind of fake dichotomy that we get told a lot where natural resources are being exploited for the sake of people, and that if nature has to suffer, we're doing it because people are getting a better life, and for nature to get prioritized, people have to sacrifice. I think you'll see very clearly in this story that when nature isn't treated properly and natural resources aren't used at a sustainable rate, not only does the natural environment suffer, the people do as well. And thank you so much for bringing us this story, Eve. I'm so excited to get to share it with people now. is a complex issue. Our oceans are a critical part of the biosphere, making up 70% of the Earth's surface and 90% of the habitable space on Earth. Seafood is a critical part of our food security, acting as a key source of protein to many. In 2016, the UNFAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization, reported that a global fisheries production peaked at 171 million tons. Overfishing is a vital topic when it comes to sustaining our oceans. When we exploit hundreds of millions of tons of seafood every year, that usually means a lot of fish populations don't get time to reproduce before they're caught. That's bad because it means that over time the population will diminish or worse crash. Overfishing is seen as an ecological disaster because it is. Fish biodiversity is in rapid decline. But if we talk about overfishing as purely ecological, we miss a huge and dark part of the story. When it's harder and harder to catch fish, what happens to the fisher people? 2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded history. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say... The will to act is itself a renewable resource. This episode explores how ecological and social exploitation often go hand in hand. And our oceans are no different. Most of the world's catch is exported and priced out of small-scale fishing communities. As people around the world are travelling further offshore, working harder for less catch, 
more and more people are vulnerable to becoming victims of modern slavery. Modern slavery, especially in fisheries, is incredibly difficult to trace. Often conducted offshore, where fisher people can spend months at sea, it's hard to track down who's doing it for work and who's doing it because they're not allowed to leave. Fisheries supply chains can be global and messy. A big trawler can transfer its catch to a smaller boat, who sells it at a dock, to someone who sells it at a market, to someone who exports it to another country. That lack of transparency puts people at risk, because buyers don't know where their fish comes from and who's involved in the catch. As a scientist by training, the first place I looked to explore this issue was scientific journals. I settled on a paper by David Tickler and others that was published in 2018 in Nature Communications. Given the uncertainty in fisheries, Tickler and his team conducted a research project that's a good way to get an idea of what kinds of factors could identify modern slavery. They used a process called linear regression. That's a tool scientists use to identify, of all of this data with all these possible variables, what variables are best predicting the results that I can see. It's a way to take a complex set of possible factors and identifying the ones that are the best fit. So Tickler's best idea of what could trace modern slavery into fisheries were two key factors. A cheap landed value, meaning that the price of fish was low when sold on the domestic market of a country, and a high percentage of unreported catch, meaning the accountability of fisheries was low as well. One country that Tickler and his team identified as potentially vulnerable to slavery, but not commonly reported to have serious human rights abuses, was Peru. I just happened to go to Peru to conduct marine debris surveys in 2018. My colleague over there was Bruno. He's a marine biologist, a founder of a marine conservation NGO, and a huge King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard fan. One of his jobs is to conduct interviews in local fisheries on the ground all up and down the coast. So I talked to him about the ways that fishers in Peru are vulnerable to exploitation. Before I start with this interview, I thought I'd add a bit on how this all fits into climate change. Well, while you're listening to Bruno, remember that he's talking about the Humboldt Current, the most productive marine ecosystem in the world. The Humboldt Current is part of global ocean circulation. It plays a role in El Niño and La Niña oscillations, and it's a big feature of oceanography and climate textbooks. So when this ecosystem is under threat, it has implications far, far beyond the borders of Peru. Okay, here we go. Okay, hello Bruno. Hello. How are you going? Would you mind introducing yourself and, you know, who you are and what you do? Sure. Before saying anything, I want to thank you for the opportunity for talking in your, in your podcast. I am really excited about it. And, well, I am Bruno Ibáñez. I am Peruvian. I live in Peru and I have studied here. I am a biologist with a master's in marine sciences. I have done all my career uh, related to marine ecology and also fisheries. Several years with a small-scale fisheries. And so to start off with, because you're a marine biologist and I am not a marine scientist, but I did study it, can we start off by talking about how important the marine ecosystem is 
to Peru and Peruvians and then also to the world? Uh, sure. So the Peruvian fisheries, uh, it's on the top uh, five uh, most important fisheries in the world, specifically the anchovy fishery industry. Our most important fishery is this one, uh, anchovy. Very important biomass of uh, production. Uh, sadly, most of this biomass goes for fish meal, which is then used to make meal for, uh, for to feed the animals in the farms and stuff like that. We consider that that's uh, a little bit devastating because we have a, um, an ecosystem which an anchovy uh, sustains. For example, we have a penguins and we have sea lions and we have um, a lot of uh, species that are highly dependent on anchovy. We have had several years where uh, we had some catastrophes with the ecosystem because they were f overfishing the anchovy. Then uh, we would see the results in the, in the rest of the species. So hopefully now there's a fish quad and they are managing that properly. And just uh, to make the long story short, uh, in the Peruvian coast, we have uh, two different important ecosystems. We have uh, the one that is uh, the Humboldt current ecosystem, which is a uh, high biomass and low species richness. And also we have uh, an equatorial system, warm waters, and it's uh, high in species richness, but it has uh, lower biomasses and it doesn't have that upgolding uh, system. And so what sort of animals and plants would you find in the equatorial ecosystem? We have uh, plenty of reef fish because we have uh, rocky reefs in that area. Uh, and also we have um, sea turtles and we have also mating grounds for uh, uh, whale species. Uh, we also have the sea lions. We can also find some uh, corals, but uh, our corals uh, do not form uh, reefs. Uh, our reefs are only rocky. A lot of species of uh, invertebrates and vertebrates and also macroalgae. Cool. So for so in Australia, macroalgae is like kelp and seaweed, just for listeners that aren't marine scientists. I've seen a bit of the marine ecosystem in Peru and it's absolutely gorgeous. We touched for a minute on the fish meal. Um, when we were there sampling, I remember seeing the factory, f like the chicken farms, which were right next to the beach where the fish meal would go. Would you mind talking a bit more about when people fish for the anchovies, where do they go? Do they get exported? Do they get eaten by people? Do they get processed into fish meal? Like what happens to them? I would say that up to 80% of the anchovy that is caught in our, in our seas goes to, directly to fish meal and then this fish meal is uh, mostly exported to other parts of the world. I think mostly to the United States and China. Then some fish meal uh, stays in the local market and it becomes uh, the, the, the feed for farm animals like um, especially poultry. We have a, a, a certain percentage of um, anchovy that goes for direct human consumption. This is relatively new. I would say popular, but it is not that popular. But it actually started in around year 2007 when I was, I was in the university. I was in second year of the undergrad. We started a campaign uh, with my university that people should start eating anchovies. Before you wouldn't be able to find an uh, anchovy in the supermarket, you know, for human consumption, because people would not buy it or would say that it was just uh, 
food for animals. But now people actually look for it, they seek for it, and it's a very cheap way to get proteins and fatty acids. Okay, so that's sort of touching on how anchovies are contributing to the protein diet and how that's changing for Peruvian people, which is pretty cool. You also work a lot with small-scale fisheries. Would you mind telling us what a small-scale fishery is and the sorts of people that you talk to and work with? Sure. So we call small-scale fisheries all the fisheries that are carried in boats that cannot carry more than uh, 15 to 20 tons, metric tons of fish. They mostly work within the five miles of the coastline. Sometimes they go beyond, but they are dedicated to different type of fisheries. So, for example, there's an anchovy quota that is caught by the industrial fleet, but there's also a small-scale fleet uh, getting some anchovy, to, and they then sell it either to the human consumption factories, the ones that make all the, the canned uh, anchovy, or they either sell it to the fish meal plants. Up to 70% of the fish that we eat comes from the same area of Peru, which is northern Peru, in a province called Piura. Uh, and it's all caught by the small-scale fleet. They go out in small boats and they catch fish and they then sell it to the middlemen. And then these middlemen sell them to the supermarkets or to the restaurants and some collect them and export them. Okay, so let's talk a bit more about the role of the middleman plays and, and the working conditions of these small-scale fishermen. Would you mind telling us how the small-scale fishermen feel about how much they're getting paid and how much they're working and whether or not that's enough for them and their families? So here we have different scenarios. The most widely, widely seen is that there's a group of fishermen who own a boat and they need some money to go fishing for several days. So they would ask for, uh, for money uh, to one of the middlemen. They would put some money in advance to finance this uh, fishing trip. And then the fishermen would go catch all the fish they can. And when they come back, they are forced to sell this production to that middleman. And the middleman uh, negotiates the price with the fishermen uh, when, when they arrive to the port. What usually happens is that the middleman tries to pay like the least he can to make more money. And so he, he or she ha have to contact other ports to see if that species that everybody's bringing is also arriving in some other ports. And if not, they consider it rare and they can pay a little bit more. But if everybody's like uh, landing the same species, then they will try to bring the price to the, to the ground. Also, some group of middlemen have uh, conversations together, so they arrange uh, the same prices. So I've seen fishermen getting really upset because um, they won't be able to, to sell their fish because all the prices are already arranged by the middlemen. The second scenario I've seen is that uh, some fishermen work closely together with their families. So, for example, if, uh, if the fishermen go so with uh, all the group and they catch all the fish, they come back to land and it's either the wife or the sister or someone in the family 
who dedicates to buy the fish and sell it to the market. So then the, the same family, like the, the middleman is within the same family. And then they are happier because, uh, you know, the, the money stays within the same household. And I, I've seen that this is the, the kind of um, alliance that works better. Yeah, well, there, there's an incentive to make the price fair for the fishermen if it's all going to the same family. Yeah. Um, you were talking before we started recording about a union group that was in the north of Peru talking about the challenges to maintain aquaculture in Peru because of the high biomass ecosystem. Would you mind talking a bit more about that? Yes. Um, so our neighbor country, Chile, they have developed a highly advanced uh, aquaculture system. And this is related to the depletion of their um, natural stocks of uh, hydrobiological resources. But here in Peru, uh, since we're close to warmer waters and we also have this ecosystem of upwelling, this uh, helps uh, maintaining a high product productivity in our oceans. So we have like a lot of uh, natural resources. Uh, we have a lot of fish. We have uh, high biomasses. And that is the same reason why, well, like, there's not that much of investment into aquaculture uh, research or aquaculture development. So what I was mentioning before is that um, our fisherman culture is so like um, so classic, so reluctant to change that in some uh, set human settlements that they would have um, some sort of unsustainable living because um, they would not be able to go into the ocean the whole year because there's a lot of um, storms and in opportunities where there's no fish and they would be like literally asking for money from the government because they don't have any money. Some people uh, try to start uh, aquaculture approaches so there was this specific guy, a uh, president of a, of a union, who was telling me that it was so difficult for him to get uh, people to work in agriculture because um, every time there would be no fish in the ocean, all the people wanted to work with him. So everybody like uh, would go and work. And then if the next week a lot of tuna started coming, then everybody would leave the work and get back to the boats and go catch the tuna. And then after the tuna is gone, then they would go back and try to get back to work. And this is really like making things difficult to, to maintain. Yeah, because when you're in a small scale fishery, the opportunities are the ones that you got to take when they come along, I guess. Yeah, they always say that um, a good a good day in the ocean can buy you a house or half of a boat or a new huge wide TV that they love to have. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but then there are days that there is no fish at all and you actually just lose money and you don't have what to eat. Do you know much about what's going on in the industrial scale fisheries in Peru? Fishermen who work in the industrial scale, they are... Um, I would say like they have more like their feet on the ground because um, they become used to a salary and also to receive bonuses from um, when they catch more fish. So for them, the situation is more stable. We have different type of um, in industrial fleets. 
mostly is for anchovies and forage fish. And there's also a couple of them that go for tuna fishing. But I have served with people that work uh, at this uh, fleet and they have salaries, they have like a stable income and they are not that much of uh, opportunity seekers. Okay, so it's the small scale fisheries that really rely on the availability of fish from week to week rather than having a salary and having that stability as being in an industrial fisherman. Yeah, and uh, as what, what I have seen uh, or the information I have received from the people I have surveyed, from the fishermen, it's like uh, the fishermen who become industrial fishermen, some sort of respectful uh, standard for them, like, oh yeah, he used to be an industrial fisherman, like something they get proud of. Okay, is there a problem of, like, is there conflict between the industrial fishermen and the small-scale fishermen if the industrial fishermen, like, take too much of the catch? Uh, yeah, there are several conflicts that are related to the quotas. Our country works like this. The fishing quotas are established throughout the year based on the scientific vessel or catch results. So there's a research institute of the ocean here called Imarpe, and they use the research vessels to get some data and try to use their mathematic models to see how, how big is the biomass for the, these months. And then they establish the fishing quotas for either the, the large scale, the industrial, and also the small scale fishermen. And a lot of times the small scale fishermen complain that they take decisions um, biased, like trying to give more benefit to the industrial scale. And also they complain sometimes that they overestimate the quotas and the biomass just because of the big comp uh, enterprises like putting some pressure in the government. Because the last word is not from the research institute, but from the Ministry of Production. They just read the reports and say like, okay, we're going to establish uh, this amount of fish for this year. So small-scale fishermen uh, several times are complaining about the quotas. And, and do the middlemen who set the price for the small-scale fishermen, do they take those quotas to determine how rare or common a fish is or is it based on what they're hearing from the ground? There's only the anchovy fisheries that have the quota. The rest of, uh, of the fisheries only have uh, temporal bands and small size uh, band, but uh, there's, there's no fishing quotas. So the price is basically established on the on the abundance of, of the of the species. For example, some fishermen in northern Peru say like, oh, um, there's some squid coming into into the coastline. We should go, you should come and catch the squid. So everybody goes for the squid and they forget about the sea bass. And then uh, there's a lot of squid in the market. So the price of the squid goes to the, goes to the ground. Or sometimes, for example, especially in winter, there's not much uh, catch. So the few biomass that they can collect has a higher price. In terms of the working conditions of fishermen, what do you think could be done to make small-scale fisheries more secure in their income? I think that this depends on where we settle ourselves. What I have found is that in different parts of the coastline in Peru, they have different mindsets. Some fishermen areas, for example, 
like to gather all the money and make bigger houses or buy bigger uh, TV screens. Uh, and I've seen fishermen areas that they, the days that they have a, a nice catch, they save the money and pay for schooling or pay for education for their kids. And also everybody is complaining about the reduction of fish sizes and the reduction of biomass and also that they have to seek for for more days and they have to spend more money and and gas in order to get the um, the fish so you know uh, f- fishing is becoming harder and that's why they don't want their kids to also be fishermen they rather have them doing something else so i think it's related to maybe reducing the population of people who are dependent on it by maybe generating additional livelihoods. I think that in order to make this happen, uh, they will need to receive some uh, training on uh, how to best invest the money or uh, how to be more responsible whenever they have a big catch, not to spend all the money like uh, within a few days. So the, the days that they don't have any catch, they can have something to support themselves. One last thing is that um, whenever there's no fish, for several days or the water is uh, is uh, stormy, they cannot go into the ocean for several days, then they are like dying to get uh, whatever fish they can. So the, make, be sure that then as soon as they get into the ocean, they will catch like small size or band fish or whatever they can catch because it's fish is a fish and they can sell it for a price. Okay, so there's that sort of ecological outcome when the small scale fishers, fishes are, are well, too desperate for a catch to support their families and support their livelihoods that they're willing to, yeah, catch whatever they can in order to make it happen. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, I mean, that sounds not great, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's 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 super interesting and, and especially considering 80, it was 80% get exported. Yeah. Yeah, more or less. Another thing that I was forgetting to mention, uh, like in year 2016, I went uh, to do some service to a small fisherman town uh, northern Peru and a place called Cabo Blanco. And this, uh, this is the most important tuna landing place in Peru. I found out that the tuna that they would be catching, it would be sold in uh, several sushi restaurants. And the price, like the difference of the price uh, between the the price that the sushi restaurant pays for the fish and the price that they sell their fish when they arrive to land is like like three or four hundred percent more expensive. Uh, and we are saying that the middleman is really making, a, making some money there. Yeah, okay. So it's those sorts of middlemen that are really exploiting the prices in order to get the maximum profits for themselves. Yeah. So when we were there, we were in just south of Lima to Pukusana. And um, when we were doing those surveys, there was a lot of debris. There was a lot of dead birds and, and that sort of thing. Would you mind talking a bit more about like the larger scale issues that the marine ecosystem experiences in Peru, just so that we're aware and that we can understand it? Sure. Um, so the ecosystem that... Uh that we have around Lima and south of Lima and all the way to the frontier with Chile is the Humboldt current ecosystem, which has a rich waters due to the upwelling. 
So we have a lot of seabirds and mammals and a uh, high biomass of anchovies and other species. I've seen that the um, human expansion is one of the biggest problems because uh, we have this culture of not always uh, doing the right disposal of our residues. So, for example, a new human settlement are, uh, appears in um, some part of the coastline. They will just build the houses, inhabit the area, and just grab all the trash and throw it into the ocean. And then when this small settlement becomes a city, then the city won't have a, a water treatment facility. They would just like throw all the sewage into the ocean. Even Lima, that is the capital city, have been like uh, untreated um, sewers going into our coasts, even though we eat from there. So I think that human expansion, uh, marine pollution due to these human settlements, also the pollution that comes from the mining industry is uh, a big problem that we have. We have like a, a lot of mining business going on and heavy metals go to the rivers and then these rivers flow into the ocean. We are seeing every time that the ocean is uh, wavy, a lot of plastic debris coming into the coastline because we have a El Nino event on 2017. And with El Nino event, all the rivers that uh, wouldn't have any water for like years were used as a junk disposal. And then these rivers got a lot of water due to the rains and they brought all this uh, trash into the coastlines. And now this trash is all like under the sand and every time the sea gets wavy, a lot of, uh, a lot of debris starts coming to the coastline. So here comes uh, the human expansion. Marine pollution due to human expansion and, uh, and industrial activities. And then it's the overfishing. The amount of people that are highly dependent on fishing and we talk here about the small-scale fisheries. It's also a big pressure on certain species that are like uh, economically important. And there's also a secret menace that is not that known, which is the Chinese and Russian vessels which uh, sail into Peruvian waters and they start just picking every fish they can and they process them on board and then they send that to back to their countries and these go unpunished and it has been for years. Wow. Okay. Do you can you talk any more about that, or is that sort of everything you know? It has appeared in several news and several times that if they find uh, Peruvian fishermen, they would kill them, or they would sh shoot the other boats or fleets that get close to them. Fishermen say that they look like uh, huge cities in the middle of the ocean because they are like enormous uh, boats with uh, full of lights and stuff like that because they are like uh, factory boats. And so that's obviously quite a significant threat, not only to fishermen's livelihoods, but their lives. Have the fishermen tried to talk to the government about that, or is it just kind of an untold threat? So the thing is that um, the, the small unions sometimes send reports to the government or they complain to the local authority of the ocean, which is the, the Navy but there's hardly any any measure taken like i think that in my whole lifetime i've seen only once or twice that they actually caught someone like in around mile 100 or mile 150 and actually 
took took him from to prison or something like that. It mostly goes unpunished, and it's something that all the people in our our industry knows. We have some problems with our with the corruption in our government. Most of the time, uh, people from the Navy say they don't have a uh, gas money in order to go with their fleet and to enforce the rules. Then there have been some scandals about the, the people from the Navy selling the gas to the small-scale fishermen. <laughs> so, it, so that's why they don't have <laughs> any gas at all. Because <laughs> they sold it all to other people. That'd do it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I know I'm generalizing and that every fisher person is different, but what are the main drivers that encouraged people to become fishermen in the first place? Okay, so uh, there are fishermen communities along our coastline that comes from the even pre-Incan times. We're talking about the before the 1400s. So they have been there for hundreds of years. And what mostly I have found that is a common driver for fishermen. They would drop from school because they would learn to fish from their parents or their uncles or someone in the family. And then they would start going fishing in their free days from school, in their vacations. They would start selling the fish. And when they would realize they would make nice money with fishing, they would drop from school or they would decide not to, they would choose not to study in order to become fishermen because they just get used to making money by fishing. Most of these people don't live in households that uh, have a lot of opportunities or a lot of money or... So they have to generate their own resources since they are really young. So I've seen that a very common driver is the money. And also uh, a common driver is uh, a passion for the ocean. Like a lot of fishermen I found that they are just in love with being there silently fishing from the coastline or sailing in their boats. Well, I can certainly identify with that and I'm pretty sure you can too. Mm, Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on and talking about what's going on with the fisheries. No, thank you for for giving an opportunity to my nice and remote country. (laughs) Thanks again to Bruno for that interview. It was so interesting hearing the breadth of people and issues that all work in the Peruvian fishing industry. But there were nuggets in there that were more sinister, more exploitative than others, and hints at the risk of slavery. That's the thing about modern slavery. It's hidden. In the complex mess of global supply chains, it's easy to hint at slavery without even knowing it. Mostly forms of governance can only identify the risks or the vulnerabilities of slavery because uncovering it is so difficult. These are the key issues I heard and the risks that they can run. The first is the story Bruno told of the middlemen granting loans to small fisheries in exchange for fish sales. Although small loans are commonplace in business around the world, and many of these transactions may be legitimate, there's a risk of debt bondage. Debt bondage is where people are forced to work to pay off a debt. It's the most common form of slavery, and it sounds like fishers in Peru may be vulnerable, especially in the face of price fixing. That brings me to my second issue, that corruption and organised cartels clearly exist within the fisheries markets. The Navy has been found selling its fuel to small-scale fishers. 
They can't do their role of making sure there's accountability offshore. From what Bruno's heard on the ground, this has resulted to overfishing and even murder. And the third is a bigger vulnerability, which is the way that Bruno talks about the job security of the fishers. Bruno talked on a day-to-day, week-to-week timescale, which means there's general insecurity about how people finance their households. With that insecurity, many more people are vulnerable to trafficking. Finally, I heard how that insecurity and lack of accountability is costing the Peruvian ecosystem. When people can't afford to, or they don't feel like they need to, abide by environmental regulations, the whole ecosystem is at risk. That's the problem about modern slavery. It's tied up in complex systems. It's hard to track down and identify. But luckily for me, I have a best friend whose job it is to make sure that the risk of modern slavery is minimised by supply chains. Her name's Andrea, and you'll be hearing from her, the Modern Slavery Act, and how we can make sure our fish is environmentally just in part two. Whew, that was that was a big topic, Eve, and how good a guide to that situation was Bruno. He's amazing. Yeah, Bruno has quite literally saved my neck within, oh, so many times. He'd do it twice a week while we're in Peru. He's a great guy. <laughs> when, when you save someone's neck, do you then get to, like, take a longer lunch the next day? No, but he did take me down a cliff, which he found really funny, and I did not, so I feel like that was... I didn't think I could like Bruno anymore. (laughs) We love Bruno. Bruno is great. (laughs) So Bruno took us inside the Peruvian fishing industry and a lot of the kind of the precariousness that people's livelihoods and and honestly that their lives are in, how the backdrop of this whole setting is that you've got an area of the world where the natural abundance of fish stocks is declining how scary is that the the mega fishing ships the the industry ships the um you know the factories on the sea coming in from the chinese fishing fleet i mean it is it is quite scary so when i was in peru i was exposed to a bit of land trafficking which is kind of where militias of groups uh, claim a block of land with bruno And so although it's very scary, it's unfortunately not that surprising Mm. um, that the ability isn't there and that there's pretty serious risk of just everyday workers that are trying to operate legitimately. Yeah, when when we go down to the local Woolies or Coles and, you know, get fish in a can off the shelf, um, it's pretty horrific to actually realize the supply chains and, and the provenance of where this stuff is coming from and how real people's lives are in danger over these products we can so easily take for granted. Yeah, yeah. That leads in quite well to Andrea, who's my best mate. She's really fun at parties. Well, she is, but (laughs) in the sense that she knows all about all of the supply chains and all of the potential risks for slavery and all of them. So, God, that would be quite the party game, eh? Just hold up a random can and be like... How many people and where in the world am I? What's the the blood cost of this can of beans? Yeah, yeah, it's quite horrific, and it goes back to how important things like the Modern Slavery Act really is, which is the act in Australia that makes big business disclose 
everywhere in their supply chain. And if they don't know, then they're not there. It's not legal for them not to know. Mm. So for those of us listening, including myself, who don't know what the Modern Slavery Act is or what it's really about, are we going to learn more about that next week? Yeah. So Andrea's primary job is to consult big business on their implementation of that act. Ooh, an auditor for modern Mm -hmm. slavery. Yeah, she hunts them. No, she doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) I want to leave that in. (laughs) Yeah, you'll hear more about the Modern Slavery Act, but also what people in Australia and the UK and America can do to make sure that we all have Modern Slavery Acts that have teeth, which is really exciting. Ooh, that is good. And it's really great to like actually tie it back to something we can do, because I, I got to tell you, Eve, especially after our first episode about this topic with the you know, Marine Stewardship Council, I kind of feel like I had so much more I could have asked about fisheries, especially after hearing this episode with Bruno. So I'm really looking forward to next week with Andrea to, to find out really what I can do as just a, a normal person and what we can all do to kind of you know, be better people and uh, more active members of society. Okay, so you're going to learn more about that next week. Yes. So join us. Check back next week as we bring you another episode of Serially Curious. This one, part two on modern slavery. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio. Studio.